So today I'll be just giving a brief introduction about Baraka, what we do, who I am, why we do what I do, um, and then I'll be talking a little bit about the relationship between tourism and cultural identity. Um, to be honest, we'll, I'll be using some examples, I'll be putting some examples from work we did in the south, so we're going to travel there for a little while, and then we're going to go back to the north to Umqais and uh, give, um, I'll, I'll be sharing with you some of our plans and work in the area in, of Umqais. So I'm Muna Haddad. I've worked in tourism for the last 10 years. I'm an industry specialist. I absolutely love to travel. Um, and I've really been obsessed over the last seven years, uh, more, more or less, um, in the negative and positive impacts of tourism. And I've done a lot of informal research. I need to be careful how I use that word around this crowd. Uh, but I've done a lot of informal research while I was traveling on the impacts of tourism on local cultures. Um, how the cultural identity changes or adapts or evolves uh, with this combination of foreigner and uh, local who a lot of the time will not be likely to travel outside of their country. Um, and I've also done some research on the negative impacts on the environment uh, based on tourism. Um, and this is when I decided to come back to Jordan and, and establish Baraka because I saw a gap in the market that um, I'll, I'll get to in a bit, but uh, what we do at Berka, it's a consulting company. We're a group of consultants uh, locally and internationally, and we all have one thing in common, and that we believe that tourism is a tool to create economic opportunities, and it contributes to the preservation of local cultures and natural heritage. So I don't know how much you know about the tourism industry as, uh, from the industry perspective, but I'll share just some brief numbers with you. It is a significant industry. Almost one in 11 jobs around the world are based in tourism, 6% of global exports, 9% of global GDP. And then there's also the extension of it um, in, in, in indirect benefits as well. So travelers also use local transportation when they're here, they buy food, they buy uh, souvenirs, and these are not calculated in uh, the numbers I just showed you. But a lot of the time, the traditional tourism model uh, for, for development has is, is actually been very much top-down. Uh, you'll have local communities in a specific area, and the plan usually comes from a government office uh, that has a very special vision for this area, and if anything, the local community may be uh, participating in, in giving ideas or they may be listened to, uh, but rarely do they actually have a decision-making uh, role. And a lot of the time, it ends up being top-down. And what happens with that is uh, that the local community end up really getting the minimal uh, financial benefits. And we call it the tourism leakage. So you have a huge percentage of the income coming through tourism to the destination or to the specific village is actually not staying within the village. It's going to the chain hotel, uh, it's going to the international company that brought them in, it's going to the bus company that brought them in. Uh, sometimes they come with their sandwiches and beverages as well. They pay entrance fees that goes to the government and very little money actually ends up staying within the community. However, these buses, and, I mean, I'll remind you to think of Umqais when you're thinking of this. So these buses coming in are coming on small roads in a tiny little village, bringing in hundreds of people um, that come and crowd the area where these people work and live and go and visit each other. So it really puts an impact on, on the way they live and on their lifestyle. However, they're getting very little in terms of financial benefits to justify it. A lot of the time it also leaves a negative um, 
negative impact on local culture. Uh, a lot of the tourists that come are not necessarily responsible. They don't necessarily ask the right questions or they're not respectful of local culture and that might really offend local community and there have been many tourism destinations that have suffered because of this where the locals start saying we don't want tourism anymore, we're not getting money from this, they're coming here and offending our local culture, they walk into our sacred uh, sites not respecting them, so we don't want tourists here anymore. So that's where we come in. Um, so what I realized is that in order to minimize the negative impacts of tourism and maximize the positive ones, it's so important to design tourism from the get-go in a sustainable manner. And the way to do that is thinking of the triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit, um, and having at the core of the design of the tourism destination, the locals of the area, where they actually have the right to even say whether they want tourism or not. And a lot of the time that decision is never in the hands of the local community. Um, it's also important that the footprint of the environmental footprint of the tourism in the area is minimal and that it's profitable. This means it can stand on its own feet. It doesn't rely on donor funding. It doesn't rely on the government constantly being available. And I'll get back to that when we talk about some of our examples because I think this last P is what we've really based our work on. So we've done some work with NGOs, with government, and uh, with private sector, essentially anybody who's interested in tourism development and would like to develop tourism sustainably, we're happy to work with. However, um, the Umqais project is our own baby, so we're happy about that. The difference where we stand out is that we actually listen. Um, I, I was, this draw towards sustainable tourism came from meeting people and seeing the impact on them and hearing and listening to what they want. So we drink a lot of tea and we listen a lot and we're very patient and it takes a lot more time um, and effort and patience than, than the type of business really usually requires. So governments need quick answers, NGOs need let's move, let's get this rolling, we have results, we have deliverables that we need to deliver and that really ends up pushing uh, tourism development in the wrong direction. So we try to stop that from happening and drink a lot of tea instead. And we also believe that by creating economic value for nature, um, then people would actually want to um, conserve it or at least contribute to the conservation of it. The hope of what we've been doing, we've just been around for the last four years and we're just testing around some methodologies and ways of doing what we believe uh, we can do. But uh, the idea is to create models that are pilot models that can be scaled up and that can be mirrored and modeled in other destinations as well. So that's all on what Barak has been doing. Um, ecotourism, there's lots of terminologies that we use. Ecotourism, sustainable tourism, responsible tourism, um, adventure tourism. They're all parts of the tourism industry that are very keen on conserving the planet, on uh, engaging with local communities. But I really want to talk today about that last piece, interpretation. Interpretation is such an important thing specifically for this audience. Who's telling this story? There's, this, there's, a, there's a buffer between a destination and the traveler. There's something that happens in between there. Tourism creates this platform. It's a stage where people have to decide and determine and come up with these general, generalizations to say, we are this. 
We as a people, us Jordanians, this is our national dish. This is what our culture is like. This is our national song. This is our leadership model. This is how we pray. This is how we sing. This is how we dance. And these are answers that, yeah, there's no one answer to that. There are 10,000 songs in Jordan. How do we determine our one song? How do we determine our one dance? So tourism creates this platform where you have to stand up and say, this is how we do things here. And what I really want to poke at today is, whose story are we telling? And um, who's telling the story of the destination? Who says, we are this? So for a historical destination or an archaeological site, um, I've oversimplified it, I'm sure. But usually archaeologists come and they do their dig and um, they write their papers about it. And this information is then provided for the government, uh, which either in cooperation or with the support of different NGOs or donors, um, eventually this information is displayed on panels, right, uh, uh, on site. But also this information feeds into the university system and college system for guides. So guides are trained to tell the story of the archaeological site of Petra based on the information that archaeologists provided. And then the guides take this information and they present it to tourists when they come on site. Is it as clean as that? There's always perceptions, right? So there's the perception of different people that comes to play, then there's their interests. Perhaps the guide speaking is more interested in water rather than um, the um, astronomy of the site. So they'll talk about that, or they're more interested in uh, this specific era and not that one. So they'll focus on that. There's only so much time anyway that tourists get. Using Petra, continuing with Petra as an example, tourists are spending four hours in Petra can you imagine the obscenity of that? Hearing the entire history of this fantastic, phenomenal, epic area for hours. And that's with the walking, and that's with lunch, and that's with all the other conversation and chit-chat of where are you from, where's your family from, what's your national dish, what's your national song. So all of that is being done in four hours. It's, it's completely unfair to all the work done by archaeologists. Isn't that true? And then, of course, you have the understanding. Did they actually understand the information that was provided? Was it interpreted properly all along these different channels? But then here's my important one. The absent voices. Is the story enough? Did everybody tell their story? Or is there some part of the story that's missing? And that's what I'd like to talk about uh, for now, that how do we involve everybody that should be involved in telling the story? And anyway, who, do we, who should be telling the story? Who tells the story of a destination? Great, definitely, there has to be the historical references there. But then also there are the locals that are in the area, and shouldn't they have the right to tell their story as well? So to give an example of what we've uh, worked on to do that, I'd like to speak about Finan Eco Lodge. Uh, who's been to Finan? Great, yeah, nice crowd. Um, so Finan is one of the special places for me. I absolutely love this place. And um, great ecolodge, sustainable, responsible, employing, uh, directly benefiting 90 people in the area, supporting 450 families. And last year, 55% of the revenue stayed in the community. So we work very closely with Finan um, and, and know them quite well. 
And one of the things they were very keen on doing is um, extending their benefits to the local community and working further with them. And they realized that up until then, uh, the, the experience of Finan had mainly been the lodge itself. So tourists come because they like to experience the lodge and the stay there. And then the other bit was the people. So at that time, um, and that's how we met, by the way, Carol. At that time, I was um, working with them on developing the story of Finan. And we looked at it in different multiple angles. So there are so many layers to the story of Finan. There's the adventure site where tourists can go and hike and see incredible landscape and um, go and hike some incredible wadis and see some really great waterfalls. Then there is the historical context and, and in different phases as well. There are so many different parts of the history. There is the copper mines. There is the story of, of the Christian uh, martyrs in the area. And then there's combinations of them as well, because you could go and do this great adventure and then go to the copper mines while you're at it. Then there's the physical adventure. You can go biking as well, or do both. Then there is the astrology at night. It's fantastic. The skies are absolutely beautiful. But then there's also the local community. Um, so these are the products that we identify. That these are some of the activities that people coming to Finan would like to do. And so we got every one of them and told the story of everyone and looked up all the possibilities and all the experiences that could be done, packaged that, and then started promoting it to travelers coming, saying, do you want to take the archaeological tour? Would you like to learn more about the copper mines? Or do you want to learn about the local community? And this was a great activity because 12 families are involved in this, and we realize then it's so important to tell the story of the people in the area. And who better to say, a lot of the time, all tourists coming were asking the guides, so tell us about the people here, how do they live, what do they do? But why should we tell the story of the people? Why shouldn't they tell their own story? And so in this experience, it's an organized guided experience where travelers go from house to house, so the participating members, and the participating members were asked, it was a voluntary thing, they agreed to do it. Of course, they get an income from it as well. Um, and they, we went around and we scouted and saw, what do you have? Tell us about your culture, show us, what do you have? And one could make uh, the traditional eyeliner, one could make really good coffee, one can play the mizmar, uh one could make bread, uh, one only could um, go and take the goats out. And so we included all of these activities where tourists come to learn from them. And it was really nice to see this kind of combination where, first of all, that stage was no longer ours. That platform was not for the organizers or the outsiders. That stage was for Um Abdullah. That stage was for Abu Khalil, who then sits and says, this is how we do it. This is how we drink our coffee. This is our culture. And our role was only to translate. So really understanding and seeing the impact that this had on the community and the pride it gave them that they were their own selves. We wanted to take it a step further. We said, why are we using the website to just tell our story? Maybe they should tell their own as well. So we went around and did all sorts of interviews with the local community, as well as staff, as well as anybody involved in the lodge in some way, and said, there's a platform for you to speak. 
is there anything you want to tell tourists? Do you want to tell them anything about yourself, anything about your culture? And so this is one of my favorite ones. So this is um, Abu Khalil, and he talks, this, I'm like a wannabe anthropologist. Um, I'm not, but I really wish I was. Uh, but this is fantastic for me because this is human settlement, and it's fabulous to see. He's talking about the first time they made the decision to settle and no longer live in tents. This is one of the guides in uh, Finan, and he talks as well about when he was a kid and used to herd the goats. He used to dream and imagine what was behind the mountain. So I wanted to place this example here because it was important to show that we had, we're not censoring what information is put. We shouldn't. It's not our responsibility to do that as mediators. The dreams and fantasies and imaginations are also part of the living history in the area, and they're also worth representing. Um, Ahmed here is also sharing his story about building the lodge and participating uh, during that time in building a specific room. He talks about building room number seven, and guess what? Reservations for book number seven went up because all of a sudden it had a story and a face and a name behind it. So what about the Umqais area? Um, in Umqais, our belief is that if we are embedded in the area, working together with the locals and developing a sustainable tourism vision that is operational, I'll stop there for a second, operational, sustainable, and within their interests and capacities, and implementing it with the support of industry professionals, it will be a successful community-based tourism venture. I've seen so many community-based tourism ventures all around the world, and specifically in Jordan. I've studied a lot of them. I've looked at so many case studies, and so many of them, the majority of them fail. And the majority of them fail because, A, they're top-down. I mean, I'm not going to summarize all the reasons, but some of the main reasons are that the design is done top-down. I used to get hired as a consultant to come into the community and say, this is what needs to be done there. Not knowing the context, not knowing what the capacity of the local community is, not knowing what the stories in the area are, and just coming as an outsider and saying, this is what the destination story should be. This is its brand. Um, and that is not a right that belongs to the outsiders. And so our vision and hope is that our role as outsiders is that we have industry knowledge. We have international best practices. We know how it's done. We have the, the market knowledge. And we, we know how to make this a successful business. So we can bring that knowledge to the table. And the table has many seats on it. And all of them have equal chairs. Um, and we just ask for permission to sit around that table if they want us to be there with them. So we'll be working in the Mqais and Khibi. We've only started a month ago. So um, I unfortunately don't have a lot to tell you about that. Um, but we're going to be working in the Mqais area, looking at it from multiple angles. There are so many layers to the tourism experience there. Um, we are in Mkhebe Foga, Mkhebe Tahta, and Mkhais, and our intention is to be there. Right now, we're committed to be there for a year and a half. However, our plan is to be there for the next five years, at least, um, because these relationships and drinking a lot of tea takes a lot of time. Um, and the plan is that we will, uh, we're basing or we're modeling it over the Gans methodology on community organizing, and we'll be working on organizing the community, collecting the stories, um, having these visioning sessions where we come up with this unified vision, uh, and the community comes up with their unified vision, and then we actually implement it with them, uh, making sure that there's also historical relevance and that the archaeological site is not just 
an archaeological site that is used or utilized only by um, archaeologists or governments, and that the story of that site really comes alive, whether by understanding the history and archaeology, but also adding to it if they used to play hide-and-seek there as a child, that's also a relevant part to the tourism story. And there's also lots of tourists that would like to engage with that. Um, also, it's important to us, as I've mentioned, to be embedded and to have this sort of buy-in uh, from the community because that will guarantee the success and sustainability of the project. Um, and, and where we really will stand out, where we hope that um, we'll be working from a different angle and ensuring that this project remains successful is that it needs to be market ready. And we'll be working on developing six market ready products, tourism products that should hopefully be operational um, and have a market for them. I wanted to touch a little bit on the donor impact before I close. Um, we work in a country that has been really drowned with donor money. And although that's fantastic because a lot of the time we can say money is not a problem. However, donor money comes with a lot of requirements and, and um, limitations, and it really sometimes pushes projects in a difficult manner. So we thought a hundred times before accepting donor money for this project, but we ended up um, actually landing with really good partners because our meetings with the donor were not, yeah, please give us the money, we really want to do this. Our meetings were rather very... Um, how should I say this diplomatically? But we really stood our ground. Uh, we knew what we wanted, and we certainly did not want to brand the entire project um, because ownership, local ownership, was so important. And we actually ended up really with good partners that completely accept and respect that um, with FHI 360, who are running the USAID uh, Local Enterprise Development Project. Um, so it's, it's been good to have that, but it's also been a challenge for us to constantly remind ourselves that the metrics of success for us and the metrics of success for uh, donor projects in general are very different. So we actually have two sets of monitoring and evaluations uh, where part of it is how do we evaluate ourselves internally uh, and then how do we also re reply to these requirements that are needed from us. Uh, so it's really been a challenge to do that, and I wanted to acknowledge this uh, for you all. Yeah, so some lovely pictures from the area. Uh, the two main uh, things that will assist us is the clustering, and we look at it in two ways, that the geographic clustering and then the thematic clustering in the area. And I've spoken about that. This is the method that we used for Finan as well. Yeah, so I'm done. Oh, I always like to end with this one, that perhaps travel cannot prevent bigotry, but by demonstrating that old people cry, laugh, eat, worry, and die, it can introduce the idea that if we try and understand each other, we may even become friends. So I think what we're trying to do with this project is really reintroduce humanity into the travel experience and bring the locals to life and get them to tell their own story. So thank you. Thank you very much, Muna, for that uh, very thought-provoking and uh, well-illustrated. I like the animation <laughs> and uh, also the beautiful pictures and the visit to Fenan as well. So thank you very much. I'm sure there are some questions and lots to, to think about from that presentation. So I'd like to invite some comments or questions from the audience.
right. Um, you, thank you very much, Muna. Uh, you gave the figures worldwide for the percentage and, uh, of tourism for uh, the, the economy. Do you have figures for Jordan on what it contributes? 14% of, of, of GDP. GDP, local GDP, 14. Wow. wow. Given the circumstances now in Fainan, are people still coming to, and taking part in all these individual activities that have been set up? I'm or, so, I'm so because glad you asked that. It's tough right now. Yeah, I'm very glad you asked that. Uh, no, uh, not enough people are coming. It's actually quite bad. Uh, and it's the case globe, uh, in Jordan as a whole. Um, I've actually recently written an article about that and the impact, because it's also not cushioned. So the impact on local communities is much higher. And what we've been trying to do in all of our projects is to mitigate that by not encouraging, contrary to what um, in general has been done in the tourism sector in Jordan, but not encouraging local communities to only work in tourism, but rather use it as one source of income, uh, rather than just dropping. A lot of them leave agriculture and, and adopt tourism, and it's, it's been painful. Um, that prompts a question from me. Um, are you uh, targeting uh, local tourists or internal tourists as well? And how does that work with the kind of, you know, anthropology that that you are uh, um, displaying in the community, or have the community display of itself? Uh, yes, we we created a mix, so we cannot depend only on local market because it's a weekend market. So we do a combination of many. You cannot just have um, one. Uh, and then we realized as well that there, that puts a lot of pressure on the experience, the tourism experience, to actually be an educational one as well. Once you open up such remote places for tourism, you have a very big responsibility to preserve the local culture and environment. And unfortunately, not all travelers are... Um, are as well exposed or know how to behave in these areas. So I've been hearing myself say the word, word leave no trace, which is a policy in tourism, um, which is an entire program that has policies on how to best behave in uh, natural environments. And I've been going around preaching about that for quite some time because of that. Um, I w there's a lot more to be done, absolutely a lot more to be done on that angle. Arub. Thanks for the presentation. Um, my question is, I like very much what you just said um, about the importance of uh, the local community having not only tourism as their main employment, but also other jobs, because tourism is really, at, at the moment, it's very unstable. My question to you is, in general, in Jordan, most of the villages and towns away from Amman uh, the percentage of employment in the public sector is quite high, very high in fact. Like it could really reach 90% of the community that could be employed in the, in the government uh, with both branches, the civil branch and the military branch. My question is, how would you come to such kind of community with very much of a mindset of working in the public sector and take them away from that, divert them towards tourism, <laughs> with its very cranky and dodgy setting at the moment in Jordan? I just came back from an international conference with a whole bunch of people that do the same kind of work. And this is the one thing that we kind of tap each other on the shoulder and kind of push each other forward because of. We all have the same problem globally. Um, there is 
it's very difficult to get people to change that dependency that's created over the government. And in Jordan, you can add the other element as well of dependency on donor funding. Uh, so one of the things we did with our project is to not call it a project because the work, the word in Arabic, project, mashru'a, mm -hmm. there's so much of a connotation to it that immediately when we go into the communities that we say we have a mashru'a, immediately they'll assume they're getting jobs from it, they don't necessarily have to deliver on it, and it's a project top-down and they just need to deliver. Um, and it, they, it, so we're just calling it an initiative until we have an organized committee from the community and they will name it, and we will discuss this problem openly with them, and they will name it uh, what they think we should be naming it.